0: in in leadership positions in schools and in hospitals. Lord, we thank you so much for those who have an opportunity to seek the good of those that they are entrusted with, ultimately pointing people to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give them the endurance to live each day faithfully serving Christ. And Lord, would their witness, as those who are in these positions, would that shine out to those who are under them as they see that they are living for a different king, not for themselves, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we think of those who have faithfully served you, Lord, this weekend we do think of the Queen, Lord, we thank you so much for the 70 years of faithful service that she has offered. And Lord, thank you that she has so often, amongst those years, proclaimed Christ and her hope in him and the strength that she finds in him. Lord, thank you for that personal faith that she has. And please, would you hold her fast in the years that you give her from now on to? And Lord, we. Think of our church here as well. We thank you for it. Thank you for the encouragement and joy that it is to meet together as your people. And Lord, we pray that as we meet, even this evening, you would be building us up, strengthening us, encouraging us, so that then as we go out to the various places that you send us to in the week, to our workplaces, to our homes, to neighbors, colleagues, friends, whoever we'll be seeing this week, Lord, would you give us boldness then to shine for you to speak for you. Lord, we thank you so much that we have a glorious hope to speak of. And I pray that you would give us great joy in that this week, Then that joy would overflow. And Lord, that people would ask us, what is this hope that you have? And Lord, give us words, clarity, and boldness to speak of Christ, we pray. And Lord, we thank you for your word. As we've just been speaking Lord, it is has so many, as we've just been singing, it has so many riches for us, and I pray that now as we turn to it, you would speak to us, you would change us, you would help us, encourage us, and Lord, would you help us as we turn to it now to have hearts and minds and spirits that are ready and willing to hear from it, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, do um, turn back to Ecclesiastes if you've got a Bible with you and follow along. And um, We're coming to, towards the end of, uh, end of the book, and here we are coming to the preacher's uh, conclusions. Now, as we uh, think about this, uh, I want us to think this evening about the truth that all of us, deep down, want to live life to the full, don't we? But the question, I guess, then is, how do we do it? Well, here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been in so many ways trying to help us to answer that question. What does the good life look like? What does it mean to be a human here on earth? How do I truly live life to the full? And this evening, we're in for a treat because, as I said, we've come to the conclusion now of the the preacher's section in this book as he concludes this quest. And in it, we see a great summary of what he's found as he's tried to answer these questions. To sum all of this up in these final verses, the preacher is going to give us three key things to remember. Remember? And then he's going to help us to show us something of what will it mean for us to live in light of these things, to live life to the full, to live flourishing lives here on Earth. And all of that is then going to be summed up in that th- third and final call at the start of chapter 12. You probably heard it there, that famous line in Ecclesiastes: "To remember your Creator." So if you're here tonight and you want to live life to the full, Listen up to the preacher's words, because in the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to see some really key answers to what it means to live a meaningful, purposeful life, a life that has joy, hope, a life that you can find rest in, even amongst the vanities, frustrations and difficulties that there are too. So let's get started then, and first of all, uh, let's turn to verses 1 to 6, and the first thing that the preacher would have us remember to live life to the full, and that is that as he's been showing us time and time again, we are not in control. To see this, look at those opening six verses with me, Uh, and first of all, see what the preacher repeats time and time again, and that is this phrase, you don't know. Look with me, halfway through verse 2 there you don't know, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Then verse 5, you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones. And then later in that same verse, you do not know the work of God. And then again in verse 6, you do not know which will prosper. This is what the preacher has found in his quest, his search for what it means to be a human here on earth, and that is that there is so much that we do not know. We don't know what disaster may come upon us. We don't know truly how life is formed. It's a miracle, isn't it? We still can't get our heads around that, and we don't know how our business venture will fare tomorrow. And why is that true? Because ultimately, we are not in control, but God is. That's the key verse in this section there, verse 5. The preacher writes, "'As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything.'" God is the one who not only makes us, makes the baby in the womb, but as the preacher says there, he makes everything. It's a pretty big statement, isn't it? He is above it all, and he's in control of it all, and we aren't. And this is what the preacher has been trying to get us to come to terms with again and again in the book, that as humans here on earth, we are actually going to better flourish Live life to the fullest when we realize and accept that. Accept that we aren't in control of our lives. So rather than spending our lives trying to chase that control with everything that we've got, which will ultimately be like chasing after the wind, we should accept that reality and allow it to actually free us. Free us to play our part rightly in life. Because there's a right handing over that goes on when we give God our tomorrows, isn't there? And one of the things that God has given us to do today then is work. Notice how in these first six verses of chapter 11, the fact that we don't control our lives and our future radically changes the attitude that we should have towards our daily work that God gives to us. See, no longer does life become all about grabbing after things things that we won't ultimately be able to keep for ourselves anyway, trying to control our lives, laying up things for ourselves here on earth for tomorrow. But instead, we should be giving our lives to work and to working hard and trusting that work to God who is above it all. See there in verse 1 what the preacher says. He says, "'Cast your bread upon the waters.'" For you will find it after many days. Speaking of living life to the full, there's a boldness here in this world, in this, uh, these words, aren't there? We aren't exactly sure what the preacher is getting at. Perhaps he's getting at the ancient sea trade, where you'd send a ship out, and obviously it would then hopefully come back fully stocked. But whatever it is, the imagery, the imagery here makes the message clear. Yes, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But don't then give up. Get on on with doing something in the day that you've been given, even something that possibly could be slightly risky. As you cast your bread off, it's possible that it's not going to come back, like the ship could sink. But the preacher is saying, you don't know that. So put that into God's hands. He's the one above it. You can't control tomorrow anyway, So do your work today and trust that God will do with it as he sees fit. And often, probably you will see the rewards of that work coming back to you as the preacher points to here. How is it then that we can have that kind of attitude towards our work? It's because of that truth that we aren't in control of tomorrow anyway. What would be the point in just sitting back, maybe just trying to protect what we have for our benefit? Just think of the parable of the rich fool that Jesus tells. It speaks similarly, doesn't it? From Luke chapter 12, the rich fool, he hoards his stuff, the benefits of his work, so that he has ample goods laid up for many years ahead. But God says to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? As Jesus concludes, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is what the preacher has shown us time and time again. Money, possessions, all the things of this world, they promise so much, but ultimately they are vanity. They amount to nothing when all's said and done. So if you've got some bread, if you've got money to invest or a skill to use or whatever it may be, don't cling on to that as if it's something that then you can make make you happy in itself, but sit loose to all of that and use them purposefully, invest them purposefully, working hard in all that you do and leaving the results to God. That's what I think the preacher is saying in verses three to six as well. Verse 3 there, it's an interesting verse, isn't it? It's talking about some things are certain in life. If there are rain clouds, it's going to rain. A tree is going to lie where it fell. But notice that, again, these things are outside of our control. We can't make it rain. We can't make a tree fall where we want in a storm. And so we give those things to God and trust him with them. And instead, we get on with the work that he's given to us. Verse 4, not just being people who observe the wind and look at the clouds. Perhaps we're waiting for the perfect conditions in life. But actually, the preacher says, just get on with sowing and reaping. That is what God has given you for today. Look how the preacher sums it up in verse 6. He writes, In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Can you see the beauty in this kind of living and working? This isn't a clingy kind of work that we can often have, isn't it? A work that says, I'm working because I need and I want more for myself so that I can be happy. Now, instead of giving ourselves to the work of like that, we work and trust that God has given us today's work. He's put before us each day, and we can trust him with the results of it, whether it's good or bad. And then notice the other thing that the preacher calls us to here is we remember that we aren't in control of our tomorrows, and that's in verse 2, this call to give generously. Read verse 2 with me. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Maybe God has already, or he will, bless your work, that as you cast your bread out on the waters, you do find it coming back to you, finding even good profit in it. Well, with that portion that you've been given by God, the giver of everything that we have, we are called here, in this verse, I think, to use it to bless others. Using that number seven, a number of completeness, a wholeness, and then adding to that powerfully to go even to eight. The preacher is expressing the extent to which we should be generous with what God has given us. Don't just give a bit, give it all. Why? Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We're not in control of it. We don't know what disaster could fall upon us and our business. So do with it today what you can. And one of the things that you can do with that today is be generous. An attitude like that allows us to be like this with our stuff and and to say it is God's anyway. And an attitude like that says that we've taken in what the preacher has been telling us in this book just having more and more is never going to be something that will make us happy. It's never going to give us rest, satisfaction. It will never protect us from what might happen tomorrow anyway, whether that's financial disaster, family tragedy, unjust treatment, or even death, when everything will be taken from you. So the preacher says, sit loose to your things, to your possessions. And one of the ways that we can really do that is by being ready to give them away. Maybe to others around you who are in need, in more need than you are. Maybe also to the work of God in helping to spread the gospel and build God's kingdom, however that might be. Remember the parable of the rich fool. Don't lay up possessions for yourself here on earth, but instead be rich towards God. Live a life that recognizes that all the good things you have in your life are from him. So use them for him. Use them to do his will. Laying, ahead, uh, laying in front of you the interests of others instead of your own interests. And using all the good things for the growth of God's kingdom. Well, in these opening six verses, the preacher has presented for us the first thing that we have to remember if we're going to live life to the full, and that is that we are not in control. And so we should work hard, give generously. And as we reflect on that, both of those are pretty challenging applications, aren't they? Maybe as we think about it, we would just prefer to sit comfortably on our sofa as much as we possibly can and surround ourselves with more and more things. But that's not the life that God calls us to. He calls us to steward our resources, to the talents and abilities that we've been given as well, to steward them wisely and well, responsibly, using them proactively for his purposes. And do you see how much more of a purposeful, intentional, beautiful life that is? As you reflect on on these words Why don't you just take 10, 15 seconds now to think about what the preacher is saying here and think about where does that bump up against me and my life at the moment? Maybe it could be your attitude towards work. Maybe it could be your attitude towards your bank account. Maybe it could be your attitude towards the people that God has put around you. Maybe just... Note down one thing now, either on a piece of paper, on a phone, or just in your head, and think and pray about that thing. Put it under the microscope of God's Word here. How could it be challenging you, shaping you in how you live your life and live it to the full? Well, keep that thing in your head. Take that on. But let's jump on now into verses 7 to 10 as well. And here the preacher is going to give us the second thing for us to remember so that we can live life to the full. And that is to remember that life is fleeting. The preacher has again and again, hasn't he, been reminding us of of this in this book. And here in the conclusion, he reminds us of it again. Look at the second half of verse 8. There, the preacher writes, let him remember that the days of darkness, that is death, will be many. Adding that all that comes in life is vanity. In this case, I think almost certainly because that word can be translated as vapor or breath. I think that's what the preacher is getting at here. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And we see that again in the second half of verse 10 as well as the preacher writes that youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Vanity. Again, fleeting. As soon as we realize it's there, it's gone. Like with the first reminder that we aren't in control, being reminded that life is fleeting and gone so quickly doesn't necessarily seem that helpful in living life to the full, does it? But it actually really is. Why? Because even though life is so short... There really is so much goodness in it, but often we just don't stop to take it in, to realize it, to enjoy it, which is what the preacher wants us to do. Look at how the preacher describes life there in verse 7. It's a wonderful image. He writes that light, as opposed to the darkness of death, light, life, is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Six times before this, the preacher has called for us to stop chasing after gain here on earth, which is like chasing the wind. We're never going to do it. Stop trying to understand and control everything and instead to stop and enjoy what God has given us in the here and now. And here again in his conclusion, this is what he is saying to us. Through verse seven, he's saying there, it's good to be alive. There's so much goodness in life. So then in verse eight, If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. The call here is for us to rejoice in all our days. But as the preacher then goes on to say, we're only ever going to do that if we realize how quickly our days are going to fly by. Just stop and think about it for a minute. How often is life like this? We forget how quickly life goes by And we aren't even sure tomorrow will even come. But in the busyness of life, we pass by any enjoyment and rejoicing. Maybe we're wrapped up in the busyness of work and the worries of life, and so we gulp down that coffee on the run, but we rarely actually stop to enjoy it. Or maybe we spend most of our time in our drive after work, or wherever we're going, worrying about the next day. But actually, if we stop and realize it, we've just driven through some of the most beautiful Northern Irish countryside in stunning sunshine, but we've missed it. Maybe we get home from whatever the day's held, and we brush off the family member or friend's hug as we come through the door without stopping to realize that that hug is coming with warmth and compassion and love and care for you. One of the most beautiful things we can do here on earth. But if anything like that rings a bell with you, hear the preacher's call and stop. Stop and just live and rejoice in the goodness of each and every day not just some future day when there's going to be no more stress or trouble on your mind. See how he continues in verse 9. It's resounding, isn't it? Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in your days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. This is like almost reckless abandon, isn't it? Today, I'm going to enjoy it. The time to rejoice is now. Well, you can Don't keep putting it off because one day it will simply be too late. Now, the references to young man here and youth, I think all that's implying is that you today are not dead and you're not dying. So if that's you today, I think he's speaking to you. And we're going to see in chapter 12 what that looks like, to be dead or dying. It's pretty brutal. But today we have been given life. And so we should walk now in the sight of your eyes. That is, if there is good that you can see in front of you right now, stop and rejoice in it, rest in it, savor it. God has given it to you. Now as we think about this, isn't this so far from what the world often thinks about as Christian living? Christian living, well, it's all about rules, strict life of rules, joy quenched, put to the bottom. But here it is. This is God's word. It's speaking to us, and it is commanding for us a life of joy. We can't get round it. It's commanding us to be purposeful in enjoying the good things that we are given. This is an affirmation that the good life for many of us here, it isn't something distant off in the future But it is actually just today, and it's tomorrow, and it's in tomorrow, living the ordinary Christian life, an ordinary Christian life in which we take the time to stop and enjoy what the day holds, to stop and enjoy spending time with people, stop and enjoy the food that we're given. Stop and enjoy all that God has given us, even the smallest of God's mercies and goodness to us. Now, just in case we have heard the preacher wrong here, we've we've thrown this all reckless abandon to pursuing joy. Look at this caveat in verse 9. He says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So maybe it's here that the non-Christian actually is right in saying, well, well, if God's calling you to rejoice, but actually then he's just going to bring you into judgment. Well, I don't think that's what the preacher is getting at here. I think what the preacher is saying here instead is that he's reminding us that even as we do this, this all-out enjoyment of God's gifts to us, we do still have a moral responsibility in doing right in god's eyes so we don't lose sight of the fact you see here that god is in the picture isn't he god he's the one who's giving us these gifts and so we want to steward them and live them live in them and enjoy them according to his will otherwise we've just separated him and completely kicked him out of the picture Walking in the ways of our hearts isn't a call to wild, immoral, foolish living, a bit like we were thinking about the last time, because actually that's going to bring destruction rather than flourishing in the here and now. Instead, we enjoy God's gifts responsibly, remembering that as we've seen before, they are sweet and they are good, and that in their sweetness and their goodness, that is meant to point us to God himself. The one who is so sweet, so good, so beautiful, the one who has called you to himself. Far from diminishing our ability to enjoy the things of this life, keeping God and his judgment in the picture is actually going to enhance it. He truly does know what is best for us. And so living according to his will is never going to hold us back. Instead, as we live for God and find our lives filled, we find it filled with meaning and purpose and joy, a joy that we would never find in living for the fleeting joys of this world alone because they're going to only ever leave us desperate for more. But God is the one who can truly satisfy our souls. He is the one who will allow us then to enjoy the, the things that he gives us here on earth. Verse 10, I think, is a reminder that life won't be completely joyful all the time, though. Here, the preacher calls us to remove vexation from our hearts, to put away pain from our bodies. And I think he says this because we will inevitably have times in our lives when we will have different uh, troubles, different emotional troubles, different physical troubles. But I think the point here in verse 10 is, again, we don't sit in those. We don't wallow in those and allow them to take away our joy in the Lord. Instead, even while we feel the pain of each of those things, and they're very real, we don't allow that to take over our hearts and our bodies, allowing each of those things to suck everything that we've got in life, our energy, our zeal out of us. See, it's so easy for that to be the case, isn't it? For life's vexations, it's worries, it's anxieties, it's troubles, it's setbacks, it's hardships. We can add to that, can't we? Or we can allow them to take over our lives. So that pretty much all that we end up thinking about is those things themselves. Well, here the preacher is saying, I hear you. Those things are real. But do you realize that even as you allow those things to take over your life, as you do that actually you're preventing yourself from taking joy that is also there, real joys. And as you do that, as you allow yourself to wallow and sit in those things, you kind of are saying, well, I'll just wait for another day, a future day, to enjoy God's good gifts. But maybe that day won't come. Remember, life is fleeting. Pretty soon, there'll be no more good things here under the sun to rejoice in because death is going to come and take them away from you. I mean, we all feel this, don't we, how quickly life goes by. Where have those two years of COVID gone? I, I feel like I just left university and here I am 32. What happened to That's, 20, that's 14 years of my life? What's happening? And given that, we need to stop, stop putting off enjoyment. Because that's what God is commanding us here. We need to stop putting off enjoyment for that future day when well, we're through the exams. Or that future day when well, we don't have that trouble in our family. Or that future day, whatever it might be. Given what he's saying here in verses 1 to 6, I presume some of the, enjoy- some of the enjoyment will be in the everyday work we're given as well. I think the question is, Have you been putting off rejoicing, pleasure? Have you been putting off joy in your life? Or perhaps what is it that's in your life that you're allowing to cloud out, to stop you from having any kind of joy whatsoever? Remember, life is fleeting. As the preacher has reminded us time and time again, don't wait until tomorrow. Start enjoying the ordinary Christian life, the good things that God has given you. And remember, as we saw just a few weeks ago, this beautiful picture in Ecclesiastes of the portion. This is the portion God has given you right now, and he's given that to you for a purpose. I hope that whether you're a Christian here this evening or you're not, you begin to see you can begin to see that while the preacher hasn't got all the answers he might have, and what he wanted as he set out in this quest... He's come away with something really beautiful, hasn't he? A life in which we throw ourselves into the work that God gives us. A life in which we give generously to others. And a life in which we take the time to genuinely rejoice in and enjoy life's good things. If that isn't life to the full, I don't know what is. I'm buying. Are you? But now as we turn to to chapter 12, I want us to see that here we see the final and clearest call from the preacher as to how to truly live a meaningful life, how to live life to the full. And that call comes straight away there in chapter 12, verse 1. He opens this concluding section saying, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. The also, there isn't in the original text, I don't know why it's been added in necessarily, maybe an additional comment, but this isn't just an additional comment. This is a straight concluding call from the preacher as he comes to the end of his quest. He's saying, When all is said and done, how should we live here on earth? What do we need to do to flourish? Remember our Creator. Notice the use of creator here. It isn't just God, is it? In this is a reminder that God, the creator, is the one who made you. He made me. He made everyone and everything in this creation. And that puts everything and everyone back in its right place, doesn't it? God, the creator, well, he is the one above the sun, not under the sun as we've been hearing about again and again in this book. He is the one who has not only made us, but right now above the sun is holding us and holding us in his hands. And then on the other side, there is us under the sun. We're the created ones. We don't have anything in our hands except what God gives us each day. Did you notice that God has well and truly been in the picture up to this point in chapter 11, hasn't he? As the preacher has shown us how to live life to the full. He was there in verse 5 as the one who makes everything. He was there in verse 9 as the one who judges everything. And so now the preacher extends that out by calling us to purposefully live all of our lives remembering this creator and judge. And that isn't just a remembering in the sense of, Oh, yes, oh, yeah, he exists, doesn't he? But actually, to live in daily mindfulness of him, to live with him at the center of all that we're doing. Why? Because, as the one above the sun, he is the only one who can truly bring meaning and purpose to our lives. And because, apart from him, all is vanity. As the preacher is about to show us, see where he goes in the rest of verses 1 through to verse 7. It's this, uh, it's this powerful, poetic description here of where all of our lives are going to end up. Look how he, he continues in verse 1. Remember your creator before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. This is a pretty graphic description, I think, of someone who is no longer in their youth, which is what they call it, who, who the preacher was talking to earlier. But instead, this is someone who is most likely at death's door. And it's pretty bleak, isn't it? The imagery there, there's barely any light, isn't it? You can hear it. Everything is dark. Even when the rainstorm that's been there looks maybe to have passed, well, more clouds return. And then in verses 3 to 5, we get this blow by blow by blow, shocking portrayal of what the unmaking of us will look like in old age described here in the imagery of this great house that's now in decline. Follow along with me in these verses. The keepers of the house, the hands, they tremble. The strong men, are legs, they're bent. The grinders, are teeth, well, they've fallen out. They don't do their job properly. Those who look through the window, are eyes, they don't work properly, they're dimmed. The doors on the street, our ears, well, they're shut. So we can't even hear ourselves chewing. Even so, we get the negative on the other side. We become light sleepers. The early birds wake us up and we can no longer sing like those songbirds. And then to cap it all off, we now live in fear. Fear of falling of what's high, and many other things too, that before, before this we might have just taken in our stride. Second half of verse five, our hair becomes like the almond tree's white blossom. And where before we might have bounded through life like a grasshopper, now we're left dragging ourselves along, just trying to get to the next hour. We have no desire, no more appetite for anything. This, for the preacher, is what each of us are probably and possibly heading towards if God doesn't take us before this time. We're heading towards death, aren't we? And this is where the preacher goes there, as we go to our eternal home. And see in verse 6, the image of that final moment, that moment of death, a precious silver cord snaps. A precious golden bowl, broken. A pitcher, shattered at the fountain, no longer able to hold the life-giving water. Or a wheel, broken and unable to draw that life-giving water from the well. And the unmaking becomes complete there in verse 7. As we who were made from the dust, then return again to the dust. Leaving aside for a moment that slightly more hopeful comment in there in verse 7, the point of all this is this pretty graphic description. It's that this is what life will look like for each of us. This is life lived from an under-the-sun perspective, and it's going to leave us with nothing. As everything that we've lived for and done has been gone completely. Completely. As the preacher concludes, just like he opened the book with, verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is the truth every single person here this evening needs to hear. If you fail to remember your creator in the days of your youth, while you can, before these dying moments, before death comes, there is no gain, no hope in life for you. It will all, everything that you've done, the toil that you've done, it will amount to nothing. And this will be what you were left like, with not being able to take anything with you. You'll be left with nothing. But as the preacher's just said, there is hope. There is hope. Because we can remember our Creator this evening please hear this from the preacher in Ecclesiastes, and please hear this from me. There is one above the sun, and he has made you, and he loves you. So come to him. Find meaning and purpose in your life. Ultimately, living life here under the sun to the full But also because this, if we remember our Creator, there is hope beyond the grave, beyond this terrible picture of what death will look like. See there in the second half of verse 7 what the preacher says. As we die, our spirit returns to God who gave it. And that is the truth that we need to hear. As we die, our failing bodies, yes, they return to the dust, but our spirit, our soul, will return to God as the judge of all that we've done here on earth. This is what the preacher has spoken about before as well. And we hear so much similarity here with what we read in the New Testament as well, particularly Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He puts it like this. "'For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ.'" so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. At that point, as we come before our Creator and our Judge, at the end of our lives here under the sun, the only hope that we can possibly have is that we have remembered our Creator in the days of our youth. In New Testament terms, that here on earth we have lived trusting and hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to give us life, as Steve was reading about earlier, life abundantly now and eternal life to come. In Christ, even though we are fully deserving of judgment, as we so often try to live as, as if God the creator doesn't exist, But in Christ, we no longer face condemnation and judgment for our sins, for dethroning God in our lives. But instead, we will enter into life, a life of even greater rejoicing than we could even begin to imagine. As all the enigmas, the pain, the suffering of this life that the preacher has so often commented on in this book, all of that is going to be wiped away. Wiped away completely and we live with our God forever. Basking in, resting in and enjoying, rejoicing in his eternal goodness. Singing praise to him for all that he is and all that he has done for us. That is our future if we will remember our creator in the days of our youth. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. But that doesn't have to be the case for you. If you will hear the preacher's call tonight, call to remember your Creator in the current day, today, life will not be vanity. But instead, you can live it to the full. Live it to the full in the here and now, working hard, giving generously, rejoicing in the good things that God's given you. And then, even more incredibly, live life to the even fuller in the life to come. Don't let God's word pass you by this evening. Come to him. Find life. As one commentator powerfully puts it, many have remembered too late but none have remembered too soon. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. I promise you, you will never regret it. And your life can be lived to the full now and to the fuller in eternity. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the words of the preacher here that we've been able to Dwell on, think about this evening. Lord, thank you for the reminder that apart from you, all is vanity. But that in you, in living a life for you, receiving your good gifts as gifts from you, not to be clung to, but to, to be generously given out. Lord, thank you that that is a life that is purposeful and meaningful. And Lord, thank you that that is a beautiful life. As we think about that, Lord, please would you challenge us and help us as we reflect on these words, even in this coming week? Would you change our hearts, change our attitudes? And Lord, help us to put you on the throne of our lives every single day, living for you and receiving your good gifts. And Lord, thank you for your good gifts. Lord, thank you for so much that you do give us, even amongst all of the difficulties and troubles that we have. And Lord, thank you that as we receive those good gifts, as we see the goodness in them, they point us to you. And that as we enjoy them now, we are just tasting just a sample of what will be even, more, even greater rejoicing to come, for eternity to come, rejoicing in your goodness, your presence for eternity. Lord, thank you for that glorious hope that we have because of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to uh, conclude this evening by singing this uh, lovely uh, song, Be Thou My Vision. And I thought it was a really appropriate way, isn't it, of remembering our God as we go out from here. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's sing out and ask for the Lord to to have the throne in our lives. Let's sing as we conclude. Thank you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.